Hello, welcome once again to another podcast of the Science of the Covenant. You know what I'm going to say. Do you have your Bibles ready? Because the reason why I say that we have to constantly study. So I encourage us to study on a constant basis, not only just to pick up your Bible when you're listening to our podcast, but also pick up the Bible during the week, even if it's just for a few minutes. So if you have any comments or questions, please feel free to email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Now, as usual, we're going to turn it over to the pastor for a good talk tonight. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, what we're going to do is to, this evening it might be uh, rather brief because what we want to do is give you an introduction into our next phase, even though it's the same topic. And as I pointed out in some of the earlier lectures that we were dealing with type and now we want to deal with antitype as a deal with the sacrificial system. So thus far in our studies, we have dealt with the sacrificial system in type. And as we continue these series, we will do so in the antitype and in the typical understanding of the sacrificial system, we chiefly dealt with the earthly tabernacle built by Moses with Aaron and his son serving as priests and animal sacrifices offered up as a ransom for the repentance. However, in the antitypical understanding of the sacrificial system, we'll concern ourselves with the heavenly tabernacle not built by hands with Yeshua, our Messiah, serving as our high priest and being our sacrificial offering as the ransom for the repentant. Moreover, we'll also want to address the issue of the crucifixion out on Golgotha as the atoning act needed to free the repentant from a sinful life and yet proceed to point out that even though the atonement was complete, yet there were other aspects of his crucifixion which merits our attention, just as we've pointed out in the typical sacrificial system that when the sacrifice was slain, the priests went farther by making the appropriate applications of the sacrificial blood in both the courtyard and the sanctuary, even so, in the antitypical sacrifice, we want to see how our high priest and sacrifice was slain and his blood applied in the courtyard of this earth and the heavenly tabernacle. Furthermore, we also want to keep our focus on this sacrifice as it was carried out on the Day of Atonement. At this juxtaposition, what we would like to do is to trace the antitypical blood of Yeshua, the Lamb of Elohim, from the time it was brought to the courtyard of the tabernacle sanctuary to the time it is taken into the heavenly tabernacle and the high priest comes out of the sanctuary and puts all of Israel's sins upon the head of the scapegoat. In this part of our discourse, we'll refer to as the circulatory system 
as we did in the typical circulatory system. Now, the circulatory system that we'll be referring to uh, would be the same, but we'll put it in its antitypical form. Now, what we want to do uh, at this juxtaposition is to turn in our Bibles to Leviticus chapter 16. And here in Leviticus chapter 16, we want to read a few verses uh, to get a background on some of the things that we've already studied as we move into some of our future studies. And here we will start at uh, verse number 17. That's Leviticus chapter 16. And we want to start at verse 17. And it reads, it said, And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation, which when he goeth in to make an atonement, in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. And he shall go out unto the altar that is before Yehoah and make an atonement for it and shall take of the blood of the bullock and of the blood of the goat and put it upon the horns of the altar round about, and he shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his finger seven times, and cleanse it, and hollow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat, and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And when we read this in Leviticus, this is, this is the type. But now we want to see how this type uh, translate into antitype. Now, when we talk about type and antitype, we are talking about uh, having something that has been uh, laid out uh, in the Old Testament in a symbolical sense. And when it talks about the Aaron being the high priest, where he's a priest in type of Yeshua, who was the high priest in the Brit uh, Kadidash. And so when we look in the Brit Kadesh, what do we see? We see that Yeshua himself is our high priest fulfilling that which Aaron was doing. So Aaron was just portraying what the high priest would do. And then when we get to the sacrifice, even though they had bullocks, they had goats and lambs, but yet when we get to the New Testament, John tells us, and we'll turn to the book of John, the... Gospel of John, that is, and in the Gospel of John, we want to look at the first chapter of the Gospel of John, and we want to read one verse there to illustrate what we mean by type and antitype. Now, we know that in type, that the lamb, the lamb was slain uh, for the sins of those who were repentant, 
of their particular transgression, iniquities, and trespasses. And when we look in John chapter 1, and we look at verse 29, it says, The next day John seeth Yeshua coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of Elohim, which taketh away the sin of the world. So what we see here is that when they offered the lambs in the days of old, they were pointing toward the antitypical lamb, which was be Yeshua, who was referred to as the Lamb of Elohim. And so when we talk about type and antitype, we are talking about some something that re, that is a portrayal of something that is yet to come. So when we are looking at the circulatory system, we want to be cognizant of that. Now, <clears throat> we have seen how the circulatory system under Moses and Aaron was carried out. Now we want to see how this same system is carried out by our Messiah, Yeshua. Now, the blood gotten from Yeshua, the Lamb of Elohim, would be channeled through the heavenly sanctuary. So what we want to do is to trace the route of the blood in the heavenly tabernacle sanctuary from the initiation of it from the hands of the repentant to the time when the high priest disposes of Israel's sins upon the head of Azazel, which is Hebrew for the scapegoat. Now, what we must understand is that the circulatory system is how the blood sacrifice for each repentant is attributed to the heavenly sanctuary in the behalf of each individual who is atoned for. We will deal with the circulatory system from three aspects. The first aspect will be that of the blood circulating phase in the antitype. Next, the explanation and the, def and, and, and the definition of these phases in antitype. Let us now consider the circulatory system phases. Now, when we talk about the circulatory system phases, we've already discussed it in type, but we want to discuss this now in antitype. In other words, we want to see how the Old Testament scriptures uh, coincide with the New Testament scriptures. And we refer to this as the phases of the circulatory system. And I want you to keep in mind, just like we had seven phases in the last studies, we also are uh, going to have seven phases in this study, but we'll be going into the implication of how they refer to Yeshua the Messiah and also to the heavenly sanctuary. So what we're going to do, we're just going to briefly go through the seven phases. And once having gone through the seven phases, then our following discourses will be that we'll take each one of the seven phases and we'll go into depth on those phases. But what we're going to do here is simply just to list the seven phases again. And then we'll try to take one in the following weeks a piece unless some may be shorter than the other. We may be able to get in two at one time. But my intention is to try to thoroughly cover each phase so that we can see how on the Day of Atonement and how the 
sacrifice that was made on Passover for us, how that blood that Yeshua shed is being circulated in the heavenly sanctuary and the application of it. So with that in mind, what we want to look at is the first, the first phase. Now, when we turn back to Leviticus and the, 20, the 16th chapter and verse number 21, particularly Leviticus 16, 21, and here it reads, it said, And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins and putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. Now, all of that, all of that that is portrayed there in verse 21 of the 16th chapter of Leviticus, it has an antitypical fulfillment that we, we want to get into that. Okay, now I want you to turn with me also in the same book of Leviticus. And in that particular, in this particular chapter, we want to look at a, uh, verse number, we want to look at verse number four. And it's, it's kind of like a parallel to verse uh, 21 in Leviticus 16, 20, 21. But we want to look at Leviticus 4 and verse 4. And here's what it says. And he shall bring the bullock unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before Yah, and shall lay his hand upon the bullock's head and kill the bullock before Yahuwah. Okay, now what, what we're experiencing here is a similar thing. Now, I want you to keep in mind that 360, 360 uh, days are in a, uh, basically in a Hebraic year. Okay, now, out of those 360 days, it was only one day of atonement, only one. And every day of the 359 days, Elohim's people, when they sinned, they would go to the congregation. And when they go to the uh, tabernacle of the congregation, they would bring a bullock, a lamb, or a goat in behalf of their sins. And sometimes when you are uh, not able to bring a bullock, a lamb, or so what, because of your status or your economical uh, situation, you could bring a turtle dove or you can bring a pigeon, which was a less expensive office. If you were a person of means and rank, you would bring a bullock, you would bring a larger animal. And if you were just a common person, you no doubt would bring a lamb. So when you read verse 4, what verse 4 is telling you is that you had to bring a lamb or the appropriate sacrifice to kill it in your behalf for your sin offering. But what I want you to notice particularly is that if you notice that when they brought the individual offering, they had to do similarly the same thing they did when they offered all of the sins of Israel, is that they had to lay their hand upon the head of the animal, cut his throat, and get his blood. And that laying on of hands on the head of the animal, that has a great significance because we'll be looking at the antitypical fulfillment of that and see what all of that means. 
because when the individual came to the tabernacle of the congregation with the animal sacrifice, he would put his hand upon the head of the goat, confess his sins over that. And then on the day of atonement, that one day a year, Aaron would have a scapegoat and he would take both hands and he would put it upon the head of the scapegoat. But instead of just putting just the sins of one individual, he would put the sins of all of Israel on the head of the scapegoat and he was sent it after he had done that, he was sent it out into the wilderness. And all of this, again, I reemphasize, it has an antitypical fulfillment. So when we look at the first phase, which is a confessional stage, is we call this the confessional phase. In this phase, sins are confessed over the head of the lamb, and then it was slain in very much the same way that when we confess our sins to Yeshua, our lamb, and he was slain for us, and the repentant would confess one's sins over the head of an animal just as we would confess our sins to Yeshua. So how do the repentant do this in antitype is what we want to understand. How do you do it in antitype? Okay, so in one of our, this would probably be the first uh, phase next week that we'll, we'll cover. But this is what we want to see. How does the laying on of hands on the head of an animal translate itself into antitypical fulfillment of Yeshua when we put our sins upon him. So we want, we want to look at that. I want, want you to keep that in mind. Now, we have the second phase. Now, the second phase deals with the slain phase. We call this the slain phase. In other words, they confess their sins over the animal head, which was phase one. But in phase two, they would cut the throat of the animal. So in this phase, just like the lamb was slain and his blood was collected in a basin, even so was the blood of Yah's lamb slain and his blood was to be collected in a container. So when we look at the second phase of slaying the animal, that was a slain that went on with Yeshua when he died on the, on the tree. And then there's the third phase now, the third phase we refer to as the application phase in the courtyard. Now, what we want to see explicitly uh, is this, that when we examine the heavenly sanctuary, what we notice is that even though Moses had received from heaven how to make and build the sanctuary, and he was given a blueprint of that, but what you would notice is that as you read the scripture, there is no courtyard in the heavenly sanctuary. So if there is no courtyard in the heavenly sanctuary, uh, then in an antitypical fulfillment of this uh, particular passage, then how do we apply the blood in the courtyard of the, of, of the sanctuary? Well, what we'll discover is that there's a connection between the heavenly sanctuary and the earthly uh, courtyard because we're gonna, we'll discover that there's 
uh, two pieces of furniture, and that was the brazen laver, which contained the water, and there was the altar of burnt offerings where they burnt up the sacrifice. And these two pieces of furniture were not located in heaven. They were located on earth. And so when we have the application of the blood in the courtyard, we'll see how it is applied to the, uh, to the altar of burnt offerings and also to the brazen labor. We'll be looking at that. So that's the third phase. And in this phase, in tight blood was placed on the horns of the brazen labor brazen altar of burnt offerings and poured on the ground of the altar. In Antitype, blood was placed on the tree Yeshua was crucified on and on the ground where he was crucified. So that's in the application stage in the courtyard. And then the fourth, there's another application. Now the, now the fourth, uh, Phase is the application phase in the heavenly tabernacle. See, when they had made the application in the courtyard, then they had to make an application also in the tabernacle itself. That was the earthly tabernacle. So we want to see how this translates out in the heavenly tabernacle. In this phase, just as the blood in the typical service was taken and sprinkled in the most holy place of the earthly sanctuary, before the Ark of the Covenant, even so was the blood in the antitypical service taken and presented in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary before the Ark of the Covenant. Now the fifth is the cleansing phase. In this phase of the typical blood was cleansed from the sanctuary on earth, even so in the antitypical phase the blood was cleansed from the sanctuary in the heavenly. And so we want to look and see how this was done in the heavenly sanctuary and what is the significance of the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. And then we come to the sixth, which is the confessional phase. Now, if you recall that when we first started, we, we had a confessional stage. Okay. Now, that that first confessional uh, confessional stage uh, had to do with the way in which uh, the hands was laid upon the head of the goat, primarily dealing with the sinners when they did it three hundred and fifty nine days a year. But this confessional stage is the is the day in which they only uh, confessed all of the sins of Israel, which was on the Day of Atonement. So when we de deal with the sixth phase of the confessional fa uh, phase, it will largely deal with the Day of Atonement. And in this phase, as in the typical, the sins were placed upon the scapegoat and sent into the wilderness, even so in the antitypical the sins would be placed upon Satan and sent into the wilderness. And then we come to the seventh stage. And the seventh stage was the clothes changing stage when the priest changes clothes. And so we call this the clothes changing phase 
In this phase, in the typical, the high priest changed clothes a number of times on the Day of Atonement. Even so, in the antitypical Day of Atonement, the high priest changes clothes as well. So these are the seven phases of the circulatory system we want to concentrate on in the future. And we'll try to take each phase uh, as they come and try to comprehensively be able to see how these things are fulfilled in the future. So we'll, we'll stop here and there might be some questions or some observations or some insight on, these, uh, on the sacrificial system and as it relates to the circulatory system and the seven phases of the circulatory system. So at this time, we'll entertain some comments or some insights on what we've just gone over with the anticipation that next week that we'll be able to go into these phases of the circulatory system and start with phase one, which would be dealing with the confessional stage. Now, you stated that Yahushua or Yeshua was, is the high priest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you were saying, too, that uh, going back to John, that he was the lamb of Elohim. Mm-hmm. How do those two tie in together? With him being a high priest and then end up being a lamb uh, that was slain. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a very uh, good question and a very important question and one we one we need to one we need to ponder because a lot of times when we look at the types uh, in the Old Testament, then we get to the New Testament, we find that uh, the one who is uh, both the priests and also the one who is the uh, sacrifice are one and the same person. And so uh, when we look look at the symbolisms of the Old Testament, even though they were carried out maybe individually by the high priest Aaron and also uh, the animal sacrifice, and then when you swing over to the... Uh, <clears throat> fulfillment of that in antitype, you'll find that Yeshua, he's also the, the high priest, and he's also the sacrifice. Mm-hmm. This is why we have to have a somewhat of a knowledge of the uh, heavenly sanctuary. Now, what we must understand is that when Yeshua came, he came as our sacrifice, and he was crucified on, on Passover, the 14th of uh, Abib. And so, he was not really carried on his priestly duties while he was here. He came as a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. However, when he ascended, which we should be getting to this when we go into the explanation of it, but when he goes into the heavenly sanctuary, uh, then the sacrifice that he has given, he goes to apply the blood that he has shed as the lamb, but he is appropriating this blood as, as the priest. You see, and as a priest, he takes this blood and he appropriated like Aaron did the blood there. Even though when you see Aaron, Aaron is primary a priest. He's he's not the sacrifice. The animals are the sacrifice, mm-hmm. and this is why the Apostle Paul says, which we probably be getting more into it. When you read into the Book of Hebrews, you'll find that the Apostle Paul tells us that we was 
redeem not with goats and animals and 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 bullocks and all of that. He said we were redeemed with the blood of Yeshua. So that blood of Yeshua came from the life of his sacrifice for us. And then when he went to the heavenly sanctuary, then he started his priestly duties to be able to apply the blood. Now we must understand when he talks about the blood, he's talking about the life because when you read in Leviticus the Let's go to Leviticus, the 17th chapter. And I think one verse should be able to suffice uh, what we need there. Let me see. I'll look at Leviticus 17, I believe it's 11, 1711. And here it speaks about, it says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. So I want you to, be able to understand that when he's talking about uh, blood, he said the life was in the blood. So when they use the symbol blood, they're talking about the life. So when the high priest uh, took his blood into the sanctuary in the Old Testament, he was taking the life of the animal in there. And in the new and the antitypical fulfillment, when he, took the, when he takes the life back to the blood back to heaven, then he's taking his life back to heaven. So when you look at him being the priest and the sacrifice, it is the fact that Elohim, Yeshua, he's the basics, he's the basic one that fulfills all of the tabernacle services. When you deal with the sacrifices, he is the sacrifice. When you deal with the high priest, he's the high priest. When you deal with the Bread that was on the table of showbread, he declared that I'm the bread of life. When he deals with the water and the labor, he declares that I'm the living water. So anything that you did in the sanctuary, he's the personification of that. And once we get it in our minds that all of this has a fulfillment in Yeshua and everything that we study in the sanctuary will give us a deeper understanding of the life of Yeshua, the Messiah. Wow. Wow, that's deep. Um, now, uh, you mentioned that if a person wasn't wealthy, they could bring a different sacrifice. And my question is going to be twofold. Um, one, the, the sacrifice that they could bring, like you said, a dove, did it have to be a clean animal? And the second part, how does that, since we don't have a sacrificial system today, relate today as far as you know a person who's maybe not wealthy and whatnot in forgiving a sins is there any difference between that okay all right let's take your first question about uh does the animal sacrifice have to be clean that they they offered back then okay i'm gonna try to answer that in two uh twofold way all right Number one is, is that the question that you ask is very pertinent and relevant. Okay, I want you to turn with me in Leviticus chapter 11. Okay, Leviticus chapter 11. Now remember, Leviticus chapter 11, this is a priestly book, what the priests uh, had uh, given, been given instructions in order to do. Okay, now what I want you to do is... Turn with me in Leviticus chapter 11, 
and <clears throat> in the eleventh chapter. All right. Now, in the eleventh chapter of Leviticus, it's going to give us um, somewhat of the things that we need to bring, and these was also for the sacrifices that. The question is asking, does it have to be clean animals? Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, let's look at Leviticus chapter 11, and we, we want to consider a few verses here. We don't have to consider many because I believe the answer would be found right away. Here in Leviticus chapter 11, starting with verse 1, and it says, And Yah spake unto Moses and to Aaron, saying unto them, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, These are the beasts which ye shall eat among all the beasts that are on the earth. Okay. He said, Whatsoever parteth the hoof and is cloven footed and cheweth the cud among the beasts that ye shall eat. Nevertheless, these shall ye not eat of them that chew the cud or of them that divide the hoof as the camel, because he cheweth the cud but divided not the hoof. He is unclean unto you. Okay, now, when you take that description of many of the animals that they were to sacrifice, mm -hmm. now, it says that the clean animals that they could, they could eat, they had to have two body parts that would give you an indication that they were clean. Number one, they must chew at the cud. And number two, they must divide the hoof. Mm -hmm. Now, when you take a pig, it divides the, it has a cloven foot but it does not chew the cud. So that would, that would not be clean. And like you might even take a rabbit. It has paws and you couldn't, you couldn't eat that. So in verse six, it says, and the hair, because he cheweth not the cud, but divided the hoof, he is unclean to you. So there's a description between the clean and the unclean, mm -hmm. the unclean animals, they may have a divided hoof, but they do not chew the cud. And then some, they chew the cud, but do not have a cloven foot. So the ones that have a cloven foot, as well as chew at the cud, they were considered clean. Now, was this something that he just gave to Moses? Was this in existence before Moses? Well, let's go back to the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. Okay, let's go to Genesis chapter 7. Okay, in Genesis chapter 7, what we want to look at, uh, we want to start with verse 1. Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. So we're trying to address the question, uh, did he only use clean animals? Could he use unclean? Okay, let's look at it. It says in, Gen in Genesis chapter 1, it says, And Yah said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark. For thee have I seen righteousness before me in this generation. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and the beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female. Okay, so when we look at that, we find out, it, was, it did not start with Moses. And here we find that when he got ready to put on the ark all of the species of animals, it says, 
of the clean, he said, you put seven, but of the unclean, you only put two. Wow. Okay, so now I want you to reason with me. I think that we are quite intelligent to know that if Noah knew this, then where did Noah get it from? Noah must have got it from Methuselah, and where did Methuselah come, get it from? He probably got it from his father, and we can go all the way down up until we get to Adam. Because when we go to Genesis, let us go to Genesis. And I believe that's the second chapter of Genesis. Genesis chapter 7. No, not chapter, chapter 2, that is. And here in Genesis chapter 2, uh, we want to read verse number 19. Genesis two nineteen. Here's what it says. It said, And out of the ground... Yah Elohim formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, and he brought them unto Adam to see what he would name them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature that was the name thereof. Now, if Adam was put in the garden to name all of these animals, and then Elohim turns around and says, uh, Adam, whatever you name these animals, that's going to be the name thereof. Now, mind you, we must understand that before Adam even named these animals, that Elohim already knew the name. Okay. So if Elohim already knew the name of these animals and he's telling Adam to name them, how did he know that Adam was going to name them right? Well, because when he breathed into Adam, according to Genesis 2, 7, when he breathed into them, his nostrils, the breath of life, not only did he get the life of Elohim, but he got the mind of Elohim. He thought like Elohim. So Elohim knew the equipment that he had put in Adam, just like you put information in a computer, he was spitting out what was in him. So therefore, when he started naming the tiger, Elohim said to himself, hmm, my equipment must be working because that's the same name that I would have named it. And then when he said a tiger, he said, wait a minute. That's the same name that I would have named it. So he didn't take Elohim by surprise. He already knew it. And then in verse 20 of Genesis 2.20 says, And Adam gave names to all the cattle. Now, are you going to tell me that if he gave names to all of these uh, uh, cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field, for Adam there was no help meat found for him. But the point that we're looking at in verse 20, he named all of the birds and and, and, and the cattle and the beasts, he named it. So when we look at that, that we must know that he had a knowledge of the clean and the not clean, to clean himself. And he passed it on down. He passed it on down to Noah. And by the time that Moses got it, it was already established among his people. And so Elohim said, when you make a sacrifice, it has to be a clean animal. It has to be clean. And then when we deal with the other part of the question there uh, about the wealthy and... Uh, what they could bring and what, what would be equivalent to that today. Now, what we'll be doing uh, in these studies, we'll be dealing more, not particularly with this question, but we will be dealing with what the sacrifices meant uh, and how they translate into the time of Yeshua and, 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 and what, it would, what it would mean. Just like if a person was wealthy, they would bring like a uh, large bullock, they could bring a lamb 
And if they were a priest or a prince or a king, they would certainly bring a bullock, a larger animal. But if they was poor and kind of in poverty, then they would bring um, maybe a turtle dove or they would bring some flour. Some, some, some may have been so poor they had to just bring some flour or some meal. Okay. And that was a symbol of the fact that Elohim, in given salvation, he doesn't exact no more for the rich than he does for the poor. In other words, each person, when they come, they have to have what they are capable of doing. And then when they bring what they are capable of doing, then Elohim can, can do the rest. So there was a difference in one status according to the wealth that they had. But when it came to salvation, all would be equal in being able to find redemption. And once we get into the antitypical fulfillment, we will be able to see that uh, when you deal with the sacrificial offering, there's a type of praise that goes with that. And there's a type of what we might say uh, as we come to give him our sacrifice, there's a sacrifice of our lips as well in giving, giving him the praise. But the thing that we want to look at is that basically all of the offerings centered into Messiah. And since all of the offerings centered into Messiah, this means that when wealthy people come to Yeshua like Nicodemus, you'll notice in the Bible that when they even came to the sacrifice to bury his body, they brought a hundred pounds of myrrh. The average person couldn't bring that. But when you take the woman who had the uh, alabaster box, what did she bring? She brought uh, some perfume or some ointment that she could put on him. And this is why Judas says, the ointment that this woman put on him could have been sold for much. Why did he say that? He said that because uh, this ointment that this woman had, uh, it cost, in other words, when you look at a day's wage, when you look at a day's wage back in the Bible, if you made a penny a day, that was your wage. And this woman, it says that the ointment that she had was it cost almost an entire year's wage that she had. In other words, if she made a penny a day, she saved that penny. And if you take out all of the Sabbath and the feast days out of the whole year, you would have almost 300 and at least 340 or 50 days that they were not celebrating on the festival days. And that was the amount of money that she took for this, uh, this ornament, and as a result, it may not have compared to what Nicodemus brought, but she brought what she had, Nicodemus brought what he had, and as a result, it was accepted. Now, let me just put one more example here. If you remember that Yeshua, these in the book of Luke, that he was sitting by the temple treasury, and the big shots, they were coming in, and they were dropping a whole lot of money in the treasury. And all of a sudden, a lady, she came and she dropped one mite, one mite. Mm -hmm. Now, mind you, one mite doesn't, that would, 
that was almost just like a, a day's, uh, like making a penny uh, 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 or maybe a half a penny a day. And so Yeshua told his disciples, he says, this woman has cast in more in this treasury than the ones who have cast in out of their abundance. So what he was basically saying is that when these big shots came and they put all of this silver or shekels into the treasury, when they left, they had a whole lot left over. They had plenty left over. Even though they gave a whole lot, they had a whole lot left over. He said, but this lady has given all that she has. In other words, this woman lived from hand to mouth. In other words, whatever she got, she spent it because she, she had to use it. And she didn't have anything left over. So when Yeshua looked at that, he said, these big guys, when they get through casting in big money, they still got big money left. But this woman, when she, the little bit that she got, when she cast it in, she doesn't have anything left. And he says she's cast in more. So what we're saying about the wealthy and the poor is that when you come to Elohim, he doesn't expect you to give what you don't have. Mm. You give according to what you got. And when you do that, you will be blessed. Mm. Now, to go back to a little bit on the first question. You mean to tell me <clears throat> with the unclean and unclean meats, I can't have my ham, my bacon, my pork sausage. I can't. My pastor done told me I can just pray over this fine. Why can't I just pray over it and it's fine? Well, you know, I, I, I've, I've, I've heard those polemics before, but let, let's look at it this way. <clears throat> uh one of the main things uh, that Elohim has given out of, out of his, his word is that there's the clean and the unclean. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if there's a clean and the unclean, we must understand that they both have a purpose. Okay. So now if he says that something is clean and you can eat it, then that is the purpose of that. But by the same token, if he said there's something unclean, you shouldn't eat it, then there's a purpose for that. Now, if you if you if if we if we look at the dietary law in Leviticus chapter eleven, mm -hmm. okay, you can take your time on your own to read it. Now, if he say that an animal is clean and is permitted to eat, then we look at that animal. Okay, now one of the main animals that we eat, but even in our days, uh, even some of the clean animals that we eat, we have to watch out because while, while the animal is clean, some of the things about the animal may be unclean. And what I mean by that is sometimes the way that we butcher our meat because Elohim says that even with the clean meats, we must not eat the blood and we must not eat the fat. So we must make sure that it's properly drained because of the fact that uh, that dried up blood and the, uh, that fat in, the, in that meat is very unclean for Elohim's people. This is why when people have kosher laws and stuff, they know how to cut the throat or the jugular vein in the animal to drain out the blood as much as possible. And then when they get it, they have a way of washing it and to get all of the blood out of it. This is why a lot of times when you 
have kosher meat, it doesn't taste like anything. And so what they have to do, they have to put a lot of garlic and spices and stuff in, in it to, make, to give it a taste. And I'm going to say something that I know of not a lot of people uh, uh, might not be able to understand it, but I think you will understand the next statement that I'm about to make. Most people do not like meat. They don't like meat. Mm. What people basically like about meat is how it's been doctored up. Mm. See, if you... If you really love meat, you wouldn't have to cook it. You just eat it raw. How many eat it raw? I, don't, I, I know very few people. You may have a rare steak or something with blood in it, mm-hmm. but most people like to taste. And if you know how to take food and put garlic and spices and, and these things and make it have a good flavor, you like it. Mm-hmm. But when you say you like something and don't put the garlic and the spices and fix it up the way that it should be, you don't want it because it's not appealing to you. So not only with the additives in the food, but also Elohim is saying, don't eat it because that's not the purpose for it. Because when you study many of the animals, he tell you not to eat, especially like a, a, a pig, a pig is a scavenger of the earth. It is to clean up the dead stuff on the earth. And then when you get to the, to the, uh, to the uh, birds, or the fowls, if you study the birds and the fowls, you'll find out that the vultures and, and uh, the ravens and stuff like that, they are also scavengers of the air. When something is dead, they'll fly down and they will eat up the carcass of those things that are dead. That's what they are for. And if you are eating these particular animals that he said is unclean, then you are taking the filth into your own body. This is why a lot of times when you go and get a blood test and stuff, they find all of this stuff in your blood because it is transformed from the meat into your own system. Mm. And so when you look at what Elohim says, he said, when you look at the land animals, it has to part the hoof and chew it to cud. But if it don't, Many of those are scavengers, and then when you get to the fowls of the air, it must have uh, what they call legs above its feet, and it hops as it goes on the earth like a turkey would be clean. But if you got an owl or some other type of bird, he said you can't they eat it. He listens right there in the, in the book of Leviticus. And then when you get to the fish, he said the fish, the clean fish, they have to have fins and scales. He said if it only has... Uh, scales like shrimp and oyster and all of that. He said, don't eat it. Some people say it tastes good. Well, it tastes good, but it's not good for you. He says, don't eat it. Mm. And he said, if it just has fins and no scales like a shark, a shark has fins, but it doesn't have scales. He said, don't eat it. And so when we began to understand that uh, many things that taste good and looks good and smell good, it may not be good for us. Let me, let me just put this out to you. Years ago, when my wife and I first got married, my wife used to go to the library and get a lot of books to read and how to do uh, certain recipes and stuff like that. And what we discovered was that one of the things about meat was that it didn't really have a taste or a flavor that was conducive but what gave it its flavor and its and, 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 and its taste was the blood that was in the meat and the urine that was in the meat. A lot wow. of people, a lot of people don't know when you're smelling the good 
aroma of a hamburger, they have no idea where that aroma is coming from. Mm. What it is coming from is urine and the blood. Mm. And when that urine and that blood get in that grease and begin to cook, and you smell like good flavor smelling, that is your urine. Mm. That is the blood and the fat that is in the meat. That is a good smell that you, you are smelling because as I pointed out, if you take all of the blood and the fat and, and, and the urine out of the meat, it has no, it, it, it would have no uh, fragrance that smells good. You would have to add something in order to make it good. So how can you pray over something that Elohim has not designed that you should eat? Now, I'm going to be a little crude here. I'm going to be a little crude in order to make a point. If you could pray over anything and you can eat it, why not eat the excrement that comes out of an animal? Mm-hmm. And you got, sure. plen- you, got, you got plenty of excrement. Matter of fact, you could probably get it free. You don't want to even have to pay for it. Just pray over it and eat it. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't make sense when people say, I just pray over and eat it. If Elohim tells you not to do something, if I want to have the mind of Elohim, I must do what Elohim says. No, I cannot pray over that which was not intended for food and expect him to bless it. I can only expect him to bless things that he has ordained for me to eat. Mm. So I leave it there. Wow. Gems. Those are really good gems. Um, The last thing that I found really interesting is you said there is no courtyard in the heavenly sanctuary. And that just blows my mind, you know, and I can't wait till you really go into depth with that to understand that more. Yeah, that's, um, that's one of the things that, that, that we need to look at because it's, it's one of the truths. Matter of fact, it's one of the most powerful, powerful uh, spiritual truths that connects the earth with the heaven. Mm. Yeah, that is. And we'll, we'll be going more into depth in, in that to be able to see that connection. Okay. Well, pastor, can you take us to the throne in prayer? Okay. Then. I love and father again. We thank you that you've given us the grace to have another podcast. It's been a delight. Oh, heavenly father to be able to dwell within your word and to be able to see what you are saying. And as we cover the sacrificial system, Lord, we have looked at it in type. Now we are getting ready to look at it in antitype in the seven phases in which we've been speaking of. And we ask so father that as we apply ourselves to these things, we can see more vividly the life of Yeshua, the Messiah in the sanctuary and also seeing as he works on the day of atonement to be able to atone for all of our sins. And as we studied, we asked that, the anointing of the Holy Spirit may take all of each of our minds who listen. And as you anoint our minds, O Heavenly Father, we ask that the same mind that you anoint, that we may have the knowledge and the perception to be able to see in each of the symbolisms and each of the animals and in the high priests and the priests, and even in the very material that the priests wore, that we can see the life of Yeshua, the Messiah. And as he comes alive in the scriptures, O Heavenly Father, Many of the dry scriptures that we read, O Heavenly Father, they will come to life as we see Yeshua being able to be the fulfillment and the antitypical uh, 
symbols of these things, Lord, that we study. We thank you for the study this evening, and we pray for each listener that thou would continue to impress these things indelibly upon their minds. Tattoo these things in our soul, that as we walk about, O Heavenly Father, we can look beautiful in thy sight because we have the life of Elohim within us and outside of us portraying the life of Elohim himself. Now, Father, as we close this evening, we ask that you would continue to guide and direct us and continue to be with each of our listeners. And as they listen and apply these things, that they may be able to get the blessing and the prosperity that goes along with it. And one day, when it's all over and you save us, may we be able to look back and give your name the praise, the honor, and the glory, majesty, dominion, power, and all of the thanks for your wonderful blessings through our Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. And for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Feel free to email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com with your questions or comments. And as it states in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, study to show thyself approved unto Elohim, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Until next week, shalom.